the creatives with ai podcast hello welcome to the creatives with ai podcast i'm your host david in this week's episode we have returning guest my friend mike nemorowski where we talk about should ai actually be a mirror of what's happening in society or should it be a tool that we use to nudge behavior and make us better people it's quite a philosophical discussion and quite an interesting one i think so hopefully you'll enjoy it as well anyway let's get started the creatives with ai podcast the spiritual home of creatives curious about ai and its role in their future so mike welcome to the podcast i think what i wanted to talk about today is i really just wanted to have a casual conversation more than any you know sort of strict thing but the question that keeps coming up for me is with all the talk about bias and, you know, the data and the stuff that's coming up that's surfacing from, you know, that, that we're finding in the data, that there's all these biases and that, the, you know, everybody's talking about it. There's, there's all these built-in biases and they talk about, you know, it's white men creating the algorithms and all this stuff. I can't help but wonder if, if that's what we want. Like, should AI be a mirror to what the world is really like? So should it actually reflect back? the current situation and and the data that's out there that, you know, if the data shows that, you know, there are more women in, uh, sorry, more men in certain careers or women seem to be disadvantaged in a certain area, or, you know, if somebody requests a photo of an entrepreneur and it pulls up a white man, like, is that, sh- should it, is that what it should do? Should it reflect back how the world really is? Or should it, should we get into the business of tinkering with that and sort of and and having it present a a false version some sort of fiction that doesn't really exist but that's trying to nudge us as people into behaving in a different way and it's it's that question that's been really really just niggling in the back of my mind and I thought you'd be really interesting it might, you'd be an interesting person to talk to about it and just to sort of noodle and have a conversation. So what do you think? Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for having me back on the podcast. Wow. Like I feel so honored to, to be a second time, <laughs> a repeat guest. You're the first repeat guest. That is, that's blowing my <laughs> mind and I, and I don't feel unworthy, but yeah, that, that is a super interesting question. I love these type of more or less a philosophical questions around AI. Hmm. And so my initial response, if I was just, if I had to give one yes, no response, Boolean type response, I would say, no, we shouldn't. <laughs> no, no, we shouldn't what? Tinker to, I'm sorry. Uh, no, we shouldn't have it reflect or be a mirror of our society. And let me, now let's, let, let's jump okay. in, right? And this is why. Yeah, so let's, check. let's go, man. When you first kind of prompted me on, on this question, and, and, you know, I think you were trying to scare the shit out of me, but um, no, you didn't. No. No. Um, but one of the things that came to my mind, as controversial as it might be, is, you know, we've already had a system, we've already had multiple systems for thousands of years that have been trying to nudge humans towards, let's say, morality, right? And, I'm sure people will argue to the level of their effectiveness, but they're probably not as effective as they might have intended to be. And of course, I'm talking about religion, right? Like we've had these, let's say, morality. Nudge is a yes. kind word for it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, very kind word for it. And I think the reason why my mind went to that was the thing with AI is it, yes, the data it's been trained on is biased because it's, been trained on more or less the history of human civilization and all the biases that incorporated or are incorporated in that. That's also its superpower. And I think one of the use cases I've been playing around with a lot lately is, yeah, it's great at summarizing things, but it's so good also at saying, hey, this is how my company normally positions something. Help me to see it from a completely different perspective, how I would never have positioned it, you know, or how would Shakespeare position this as opposed to, you know, a, a 21st century marketer? <laughs> Love it. You know, and, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it's that because it has no inherent bias, it's just been trained on the state and it's just making these statistical 
assumptions that, okay, it told me, you know, you gave me this prompt and I'm going to give you this output. It has no intent behind it. It's just doing what it's, it's basically built to do. Keeping it generalistic like that, I think, is important because for the exact reasons that the other systems for the past thousand years seem to fail is there's never like one size fits all. It always ends up being dogmatic. It always ends up being corrupted and for the benefit of certain individuals more than the actual intent beginning. And so to the, to the gr- degree that it's possible, and this is where we can really get into the weeds, is I think we should try to keep our AI as generalistic as possible, giving it as much information as possible so that we can have it you know, take these different perspectives, which should hopefully elevate us. But the other part that I want to talk about is the nudging. And besides the fact that me and you have you know, spent the past, I don't know, 20, 30 years of our lives working in systems of helping humans use data to nudge other humans to do things. To um, buy things. Yeah, to buy things in particular. But I, I think it's just a, a, a natural human instinct to like nudge other humans and you know, species in, in general. It would be pretty cool and I think pretty useful if we could keep AI generalistic, but still nudge us towards this baseline of ethics. And I think we talked about this briefly last time is I'm not talking about any particular East versus West philosophy of morality or anything like that, but there's some baseline like human ethics and maybe there are Asim, Asimov's three laws, you know, do no harm and, and all that type of stuff. But there's got to be, a, I really believe there's a baseline of like, what is the mor- like morality baseline? And, and it's probably pretty low, like don't kill, you know, don't do someone, something that's going to hurt someone else or don't try to benefit off of the pain of others, that type of thing. Or like don't torture people for, you know, years on end. Anything like that is pretty easy for me, like 99.9% of the planet to say, yeah, okay, that's, that's at least a, a baseline to start from. So yeah, yeah. I would say not just towards doing better, but at, you know, like keeping the, the morality, let's say, vague. I think it's a good point. And and one of the conversations, there was a lady that spoke in an event that I was at earlier this year, and I think I may have mentioned it before at some point, but what she was saying is, or her point was, is that when you get into the ethics discussion, and, and this goes back to the nudging, I think, discussion in the as well, is she said the only place that you can start really is with the, the international human rights law. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's the only thing that has sort of universal agreement across every single country in the world is that the human rights, the core human rights legislation. And aside from that, then it starts getting really woolly. So she was like, you know, it was her sort of idea that that's kind of where we should start and try and, you know, build from there. So I think that matches with what you're saying. Yeah. You know, that that there, there is some core set of beliefs, but even when you get into some of the you know, even like the, the engagement rules and war and all that sort of stuff, like not all countries agree to that. And so, you know, you don't even have universal agreement about that. So it, it gets really woolly, really quick. And I guess, I guess my worry is, is that I I think that I, I think AI could be useful as a mirror because it, it continues to sort of, and as the data gets updated and it, you know, as we move through time and, and through society, then it's going to, it's going to continue to reflect back. So if we start to see a change in the way that it works, then I think we could say, okay, well, actually we're seeing a change in the data. So we know it's actually, we're actually changing. But I just, I don't know, again, like you said, I I feel like what group then takes precedence over another group? So if you start presenting, you know, if you say, if you just, you know, say, what is an entrepreneur? Show me images of an entrepreneur. What, you know, I think at the minute it would probably show you why a, a whole page full of white men. But who decides if we're going to change that? Who decides what goes first, and who decides how many women get shown, and and how many different races get shown, and which races get shown, and in what order do they get shown in? And do you know what I mean? And for sure, it just feels like it's going to turn into a massive bun fight over. Well, but my group should be ahead of your group because my group is more disadvantaged than yours. Yeah, to what degree, I guess. Do you want the AI to police that or maybe not police it, maybe guide you, right? So maybe if you ask, if you ask the prompt, generate an image of an entrepreneur. And I've been playing around with this, obviously, very, very recently, where 
I'll yeah, see. which I thought I thought you might be a good person because I know you're doing this. So that's part of the reason why you know I wanted to. Yeah, like I'm I'm literally generating content. And I wanted some iconography, and I would ask. I think I was using. Uh, I guess it's. It doesn't matter. Dolly, right? I guess whatever Microsoft Bing is. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. But you know, I put in something like one colleague talking to another colleague about a problem, and you know, put some idea bubbles over their head. And it was interesting because it did generate these like very generic kind of white people in business suits. So that, because I didn't want that representation in the iconography, made me prompt it again to say, give me a female colleague, maybe of color, uh, not wearing a suit because like who are suits anymore? I mean, I'm sure there are, sorry, for anyone that likes suits, I'm exactly. sure there's claim, yeah. but I think, you know, <laughs> Lawyers still wear suits. Lawyers, business, or banking probably still wears a lot of suit and tie, but, but yeah, it wasn't very representative. And so, now I, I prompted it and a lot of people will probably reprompt it, but maybe we do incorporate things in the AI to say, before I generate this image, can you give me a bit more information on what type of representation you'd like to see, right? So it, it already tries to nudge us in, into helping it not go with the default but yeah you know that it's interesting that the i don't know like are we 100 percent sure that it's biased in bringing back those images or it's just a case of there just happens to be more images of white people in suits with tags of entrepreneurships right and so yeah. which is probably the case right and but what it's unearthing is it's unearthing the bias that's already there. Exactly. Right? Like, like I was at an event the other day. I was lucky enough somebody asked me to MC an event, a local event for the uh, the business improvement district. And, um, and I went along. And one of the presenters that was there asked the question of the group. There was about 80 people there. And one of the presenters asked and said, how many people in the audience doesn't have bias? And no one raised their hands. And they said, how many people in the audience – how, how many of you feel that you're not prejudiced in any way? And no one raised their hand. It's, it's a human thing. We all have biases and we all have prejudices and we all know that. So the fact that it's in the data isn't surprising, which is what, again, which is, you know, what gets me back to the mirror thing. So the mirror almost enables us to gauge how much of a bias we have. And, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like that might be useful somehow, it, it, but what was interesting, I'm, Go ahead. Well, I, say, I think I think you're right. I think, especially in today's environment, where like it or not, and I'm probably on the not side of wokeism from the perspective of I think it's it's actually done more harm than good. But it where it has done good is, I, I believe. But again, my sample size is just my colleagues and the the companies that I've worked for. It's made it more of an issue, which means that people like the people in the audience that you were saying now realize, no, I, I definitely am not without bias. I definitely am not without prejudice because it's almost impossible to be. I simply am biased by this, you know, 46 years of experience that I've had. No one else has the exact same bias as I have, but I probably have similar bias to other people. And so, right. And so now that we're aware of that, I think it's wonderful that we have this mirror to be like, Ooh, even more glaringly, like, you know, Hey, this is, this is the this is the reality of the the breadth of let's say human literature that we've trained these machines to understand and and so that's a hundred percent i i would say it's good that it is a mirror and i would say and this is where i'd like to also talk a little bit more about is because i know you've had a couple of people on about using ai in education and that whole debate around well kids are just going to use chat gpt to cheat well the thing is is the this mirror is exposing a lot of things to us. And if we just use it as the mirror and we just get the, the you know, the default response, well, that's not good. But if it's actually going to expose that to us and then it can also even help us and, and going back to the example I used of saying, hey, here's a piece of content that me and my colleagues wrote for a marketing piece or a blog post or anything like that. Point out all the biases that I have in here. It's actually good at doing that, you know, and, and help it's us. really good. Yeah, like help us to to reword this that would go towards an audience that we are not a part of, that we are, you know, and that's the problem is like, it's really hard to escape your bias again, because you've had this lived experience and you haven't had any other. And even if you, you know, you, um, you have multicultural friends and you try to expose yourself to multicultures, you still haven't lived that experience and neither has the AI, but at least it can go and find 
what even small amount of content it's been trained on to try to, to reword it. Um, and so I think, yeah, you're right. Like the mirror is important. And then if we can even push it a bit forward to say, let the AI actually suggest, oh, you know, have you, have you thought about and what I like actually that Bard does is give you the three options or responses. It'd be nice if they also said, would you like different perspectives or would you like, you know, I don't know. Of course, it'd have to be relevant to the, to what you're asking. No, no, but, no. Yeah. That's a, that's an excellent idea. And I've made a couple of notes while you've been talking. And one, one of the things I want to go back to, which I think is, is relevant to this bit is the prompting questions. And I find that really, really powerful as if, if I'm asking it to do something like help me make a marketing plan or help me write a business plan or help me write an intro paragraph for this thing, right? Like this, you know, this studio thing I'm working on, I, I got, I was like, I, I had some ideas. So I put a bunch of ideas in and said, help me, you know, write this, make, make this into like an intro paragraph or whatever. But then I've learned that a lot of times if I just tell it to ask me questions before it writes the answer, it gives way better results because then it will come back and say, well, who's the, what's the name of the company or, you know, what target, what's your target market and all these sorts of things that I didn't put in the prompt in the beginning. And I, I really like that. I think feels like maybe there's a, there's a version of an AI somewhere that like, it's literally programmed that every time you ask it to do something, it's programmed to ask you like, like at least three follow-up questions. Yeah. Like it, <laughs> it can't just give you an answer until it, it asks why three yeah. times, right? Which was the classic. Or like, something, yeah. Uh, analytics training that I remember I used to do. It's like when somebody asks you for a piece of data, ask them why three times. And yeah, it'd yeah. be great. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's probably just the case of it's going to come and and this is interesting as well to, to maybe explore is the sharding. I know we've talked about before, I think you mentioned like Sam Altman talked about a federated system of AIs and how they might be a bit more specialized. Yeah. Um, and even yeah. if there does become, let's say, general AI, which is still TBD. But yeah, those the fact that you might have very specific AIs and nice layers on top of those AIs. So the large thing... Large language models are one thing, but one of the things that, that got me into thinking, oh, like, okay, let me let me start tinkering around with my own stuff, wasn't necessarily because I wanted to build a whole new large language model. It was that as useful as they were, I felt like there wasn't enough of a layer on top of them to be even even more useful, if that makes sense. Like, I was a bit inspired by by a podcast I listened to where he was, he's, he was a co-founder of Optimizely. I'm sure you remember that company, the A-B testing software, yep. where that was a crowded yep. space when he was into it. He's like, but it wasn't about competing. And the way he phrased it was amazing because it was like, it's not just about competing on the feature set. It's competing on the user experience you give to your customers. And as a product manager, I, I really felt that in my bones because that's exactly right. It's not about the competitor has this feature, so we need to have it as well. It's about, well, does that feature even deliver value to the customer. And I think with AI and what ChatGPT did and now Bard is doing and, and all the rest are doing, this one input prompt where you can start talking to an LLM is an amazing experience. But it's just the beginning. And to be able to put a nice a nicer layer on top of that, which might actually prompt you, especially if it's specialized in a particular industry or a particular use case, then it, it abstracts the the technology of this large language model, just doing statistical analysis to say what word, I love that meme that you shared of Gromit putting, you know, the next track down. That's all it's doing. It's yeah, just, yeah. you know, making exactly. guesses. Exactly, that's all it's doing. But if you can, if you can engineer this beautiful layer on top of it that actually says, no, Dave, you know, don't just ask me for an entrepreneur. What is your entrepreneur trying to convey? You know, and really gets you to, exactly. to yeah. like, to yeah, express yeah. what you wanted to create. Then you start creating much better outputs from it and, you know, hopefully actually getting even more use from it. But in that could, now this is where we come back to the debate, but then it's still on whoever's building that, that layer on top to, okay, well, you know, how much ethics do I put into this and how much diversity do I make sure that it's trying to evoke from the user? And then going all the way back to the first question, it's kind of like, well, I don't know, because although I want it to nudge us in the right direction, because let's say I'm, I try to be a quite moral, upstanding citizen of the world, I always feel that any type of control that 
that a human is going to put into or even a group of humans put in, puts into it will ultimately not lead in the direction that is intended. Maybe at first, yeah. and it, it probably yeah. is better than the opposite, but at the same time, maybe it's better just to let almost like a free market approach mm-hmm. let the chips land where they may and you know the checks and balances of the system will will put pressure on people to get better at using ai so that they apply the the morality of the day even right because i think that's a huge problem as well there's no way yeah, yeah. You know, even though it's a mirror of us up to now it will continue to reflect as things change as well and you, you kind of touched on that as well so in theory the the market forces and the the checks and balances should automatically make it more diverse and there should be better data sets and all that but it's well the other side of that also is that i think moving forward what we're going to see is like up until now models have pretty much just had unfettered access to train on whatever they wanted to but moving forward they're not so there's a lot of companies out there there's a lot of you know sort of groups that are pushing obviously for more copyright protection and and that sort of thing so i think that the the potential information that's available is going to going to become much more limited as well so we could actually slow down a little bit because not so much current information is going to be available and it's still going to be models trained on data from 100 years ago and stuff that's out of copyright. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, maybe the system's always going to be lagging about 75 years behind. But let's, because, let's, let's yeah. go deeper on that. Because I think this is, a, this is such a fascinating topic for me. And I'm not an author. I don't have any intellectual property out there necessarily that I'm particularly worried about the AI learning from and therefore me not selling as many of that intellectual property. So I have no skin in the game. I can try to empathize with, if I did, that would suck, you know, that all of a sudden the sales of my book or, or whatever are not going. But because this also overlays into that topic with education where I'm hoping that it actually makes things better and that I would still appreciate human created content and it possibly even more so because now that content is enhanced by even more research capability and even more rewordings if you know what i mean because it's not like it's pretty obvious still when it's ai written yeah that's getting better but if we go to the example of education, it's not that the kid can go to ChatGPT and say, write me an essay on the War of 1812. Of course, it, it can do that. And if, whether or not the teacher will realize that or then you start saying, you know what, do you have to write the essay in class without the use of any, any software? The, exactly. The yeah. motivation of wanting to know about the War of 1812 is the heart of the issue, right? So it's... It's, well, is this important for the kids to know? If it is, how do we get them excited to put it into a context that makes sense and gets them excited so that they start with the chat GPT written essay, but then they start extracting how they apply that to their daily life. And I think there's parallels, but I'm sure if there was an author or a musician or someone out here, I'd get smacked down pretty hard. I, I just feel, I, I don't know. I think there are parallels there where... Yes, your books, just as they're currently available on the market, if I read a book and then write 15 blog posts or even start a whole new career or a billion-dollar billion dollar company just because I read your book and I'm not going to give yeah. you a penny, I might give you a credit. Like, oh, I was inspired by this book and I created this billion-dollar company. Well, that author's not getting any piece of that billion dollars. Exactly. They maybe got $9.99 for the, for the book. So I don't see it as completely different especially since there are some safeguards already in place for the AI to not just be a plagiarism machine, literally spitting out the contents of that book. So yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts there? Like how, how, how can there be, why does it have to be either or? Is there not a best of both worlds approach for things? Yeah, I, was lit- I literally had a call with somebody about this before, 
before we we had our chat now. And what was interesting is I th- I think there's there's still a well established you know if if you if you take a copy of something that someone's done and then you repurpose that in your social media or you do, you know, whatever. And, you know, someone sees that or you take a bit, a piece of music that someone's done and you, you know, you use it sort of as is that's a clear copyright infringement, right? There's already laws and rules around that where it gets really woolly. Like you said, is in that inspired by, you know, and, and my point was, is, you know, if, if I go into a photography studio and I take black and white, you know, profile pictures of people am, am i copying rankin no yeah. do you know what i mean it's not yeah, Jerry. rankin is rankin he, yeah. but all he does is uh, all he does but <laughs> it's gonna people are gonna cane me for this but it looks but still than at, it is, at so. its core at its core it's all true. he's doing is is generally you know taking he's taking profile pictures of people and you know maybe there's a way that he sort of produces his images and the way he kind of tweaks his color balance and all that sort of stuff but at the end of the day it's you know he he might do a black and white you know profile and so it's really difficult to say well you copied rankin and it's like well it's just a black and white profile so there's a massive gray area there and i agree with you and i think where the specifically staying on the education topic i think where educators are actually finding it really helpful and i'm I've got a guy named Byron who's coming on and, and he's a he's an assistant head teacher at a primary school, I think, here in the UK. And what he's figured out is is it's super engaging for the students. So what he does is he adds extra content that's not part of the curriculum, strictly part of the curriculum, but that helps the kids learn better. And he's used tools like Eleven Labs, so shout out to Eleven Labs, but he uses things like Eleven Labs to create he writes a script. And then he puts it in 11 labs, has a fake voice, read it. And then he puts that up as sort of a fake podcast. And then the kids can go and listen to it. And so the kids like think it's really fun and it's interesting and the kids can help write it. So he'll get them engaged in class to say, hey, let's put some of this stuff together. I'll use some of your work. We'll put it into this tool. We'll make it. And then you can listen to it and you can have your parents listen to it or whatever. And it's, it's another way to engage the kids while also teaching them extra stuff at the same time. So that's that's one really good use for the tools. Another one, and I think I might have mentioned this at some point along the way, is a lot of students are using it to help them prep for their exams. So, you know, in the UK in particular, uh, it works a little bit different than it works in the US and, and what you and I were used to. But when they, they have these A-levels, which are kind of, and, and GCSEs, GCSEs are like your high school finals kind of, mm-hmm. and your A-levels are sort of like a an SAT or an ACT kind of thing that you take. But the thing is, is that, you know, the, the students spend an, an enormous amount of time preparing for those exams so that they can pass and they can get good scores and they can go to uni. And what the teachers have worked out is, is that the students are taking the questions from old exams, putting them in writing their answers and then saying, grade my answer and give me suggestions on how to write a better answer to this question. Yeah. And it's almost like a personal tutor. Yeah. And the, the teachers love it yeah. because it means that the students can get almost one-to-one tutoring without having to, you know, take up more of that teacher's time. And the teachers can work with those students who really are struggling and who really aren't getting the concept. So it, it frees them up as well. And they've done the, the few teachers that I've spoken to have done a lot of research. They've looked at, you know, they've said, go and try it, bring in what it tells you, because I want to check it to make sure that it's giving you the right advice. And they're like, a lot of times the advice is stuff that we didn't even think of. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you know? And they're like, it's so good. So now you've got a whole, and, and I'm encouraging my son to do that because he's going to do his A-levels next year. And I'm like, look, when you start doing your revision and all that, you need to start dropping those questions in, write your own answers, do that and use those tools so that you can try and develop better answers and you can get better scores on the test. And for that kind of stuff, it's not, that's not cheating. That's the same as just having a tutor. Absolutely. It's amazing for that kind of stuff, you know. So I I think the potential for education and even if you think, you know, special needs students and things like that, where maybe you've got dyslexic students who struggle or you've got students of, you know, maybe where English isn't their first language or if they're in France, maybe French isn't their first language. Like it could be any language. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But those sorts of things can really help students learn and develop their skills 
And like you said, it's it, it's not about it's not about cheating, in quotes, yeah. you know. And I don't know. There's a part of it that's like this whole cheating thing is is are we just salty because we didn't have access to those tools when we were young, right? Probably, and we're like, well, yeah. that's cheating. But if we had had them, we would have totally used it ourselves. You well, know? yeah, and beyond the let's say the special needs cases or like the learning disabilities, which we'll probably even uncover slightly more. Like we could maybe even learn more uh, learning disabilities that aren't necessarily even defined. But, you know, one other issue is kids getting bored because maybe they are ahead of the rest of their class. You know, if you have a class of 30, it's probably a bell curve and there's going to be two or three that are just waiting for everyone else to catch up. Well, now the AI can challenge them further, right? That tutor can can challenge yeah, them to go above and beyond. And And I think in a way, coming back to authorship and you know letting the ai train on your material hopefully it's also gonna like ride raise all boats in the sense that it might challenge you as an author to go a step beyond and i guess it's an impossible question to answer you know i i don't know if i would read a book generated by ai i think for sure for sure not yet so at this point there's just a lot of uncertainty on the the accuracy i don't think completely generative text from ai is, is quite there yet but yeah you know that that just comes back again but to if it's I feel a butt coming <laughs> well yeah it, it might get it might get better and you know even you know, google's self-checking bards answers with google searches and what was yeah. funny is i just yeah. used it yesterday did the self-check literally every statistic it gave me was like <laughs> It couldn't find an actual statistic right. for like that's that's <laughs> insane. But I always ask it for citations just on that. So when I ask it for something that I know needs data, if you just in the prompt ask it for the citations of where it gets it, then it tends to be more accurate because you can then click on the links and go see exactly. where it got the it information. It has to find a link. Yeah. yeah. So it takes it a little longer, but and it's not as creative but it gives you stuff that you can actually reference. So anyway, top tip from from my learning anyway. Oh, for sure. But I guess also slightly coming back to the original question as well is maybe another example is we've talked about before, and I know you've had other uh, people on the podcast about this as well, is the creative industries of, let's say, movie making, movie writing, music for that matter. But let's, let's stick with like movie making. Yes, AI will certainly democratize who can create film now. And, and the Writers Guild certainly has a um, right to be concerned, let's say, of the, let's say, the, the, the stock democratization and then the diminishing of their value, maybe. Because I still think if you have the talent in there to be a, a let's say, particularly like a comedy writer, that is almost impossible to mimic. Yes, you can make Forgive Me Hallmark. You can make tons of Hallmark Christmas movies that all follow the same <laughs> template, but you don't need to apologize for that. No, exactly. But you know, we'll watch them because they're just on in the background. Well, I won't watch them. My wife will watch them because they're just on in the background during the holiday season. They're feel good and all that type of stuff. But truly good content, I think, is still going to be the the yeah. the hybrid approach. Where yeah. great now, I don't need maybe necessarily studio budgets, but to make a movie like Superbad, which is going to be Class, you know, an instant classic. You're not going to put, you can try to copy Seth Meyers' writing tactic and you can try to copy, um, you know, those actors' delivery of it. But there's something inherently human of that lived experience, which is never going to be in the machine it, because yeah. it's never going to have that lived experience. Yeah, totally agree. So I think it's, I, I don't know. I think we shouldn't worry so much about copyright infringement and not letting these models train on it. In fact, it's it would it would only help you as an author to then you know go to the next level and collaborate with it. But yeah, I'm glad you said that because one of the one of the points. So this this went all the way back. So the lady I was talking to, I met at the Women in AI Fringe event when they had the AI Summit here in the UK, and we started talking about this. and And I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this as well. And it's it's was sort of along the lines of what you were saying, which is you know. What I wonder is, is I wonder if you're going to end up in a situation where the the creatives that lean into AI and say, actually, yes, you it's fine. Use my style. 
use my tools, use my information, use my data, whatever, it's totally fine, will ultimately end up getting more PR and more coverage and more recognition because that will start to show up in what other people do. And the example I always give and I use for this is Dave Matthews Band. So Dave Matthews Band, for people who don't listen to Dave Matthews Band or, or aren't American, they're like the largest touring band in the world. And the way they became popular is by not copywriting, protecting all of their concerts. And in fact, they used to encourage the college kids to record it. And they would even let people plug into the soundboard to get really, really good sounding cassette tapes back in the day. And then they wanted those college, because they were mainly playing at universities and stuff like that. And they wanted those uni students to take those tapes and then to make copies and to give them to their friends because it got the word out about their music. And it meant that more people came to the shows. And so they were selling out shows really quickly because everybody had heard of them because they allowed everybody to make all these bootleg, what what would be called bootleg tapes. Like sanctioned bootleg things, basically. Yeah, exactly. But that's how they, you know, their goal from the very beginning, that Dave Matthews has said this in a few interviews, it's like, you know, he their goal was to be the biggest band in the world. Mm-hmm. Like there was no, it wasn't like an, a happy little accident. Yeah. Like they yes. had a plan. They they wanted to be the biggest band. And so, but but they realized that in the beginning that restricting people from getting their stuff wasn't the way to do that. They wanted everybody to hear their music because that meant that everybody knew them and everybody would, you know, come and they would get the most exposure. Mm. And I, that really, that had a massive impact on me and has had on my thinking for a long time. And I just wonder if we're not in that same type of situation at the minute where, you know, AI has the potential to generate massive amounts of, coverage and scale for people and artists and and writers and and designers and stuff that maybe they never had the ability to, you know, to do before and combine that with social media. And, you know, you could, you really could take off by, you know, just by AI kind of copying your thing. And then people start to look at it and they go, oh, this is the original person that did that. Well, I, no, I think, I think that's 100% right. I think we, we shouldn't discount it. But luckily, we have the technology to trace things back, right? So as long as we're putting in safeguards to make sure the AI does give credit where credit is due, that does exactly give exposure to that. But I really believe in everything that you said as far as what Dave Matthews' approach is like, actually, rather than trying to police it and restrict it, let's lean into it and then ride the wave and whatever that brings. But in particular, from a creative perspective, creating music can be quite hard. You know, you talk to even Dave Matthews band probably and any other, like, yeah. like maybe at first when you're 18 and you're full of rage, you know, piss and vinegar and you've got lots of things to say, <laughs> the, yeah, exactly. the, the music's flowing out of you. But that at some point you're going to start getting, you know, creative blogs and, and not knowing where to go next. And I just watched the Quincy Jones uh, documentary on Netflix, which was, was quite oh, yeah. nice. And over and over, he, you know, they film him saying things like, it's the same 12 notes. Like we've had the same 12 notes for whatever, 800, a thousand years in Western music. And exactly that, like, first of all, from those 12 notes, look at, you know, look at the amazing breadth of music and styles that we've been able to produce. But however, there's probably times where you're trying to figure out what can I do next and where in the past, maybe you got inspiration or, you know, someone like Quincy Jones got inspiration by exposing himself to different genres and going from jazz to um, movie scoring to hip hop and, you know, and everything between pop music with Michael Jackson and that kept his creative juice flowing. Well, now not only do you have all these genres, but you have the power as AI to say, okay, yeah, I I made this composition. Give me some ideas to change it. Or, you know, what are some influences that I'm not thinking of? And and right away, instantaneously, it's helping you to create something you never would have had the exposure to as quickly or as easily. Like you, you know, I want to, I want to throw in some, some Andre 3000 flute sounds, you know, because he, he traveled to Japan (laughs) and became a, you know, a flautist. But I think this is probably inherent in humans, right? Like we, we, we intend, like at first get fearful. What does this mean? Obviously, bottom line is important as well. Like what does this mean to my day to day? ability to, to put food on the table, that's that's important. But I I still am optimistic that 
it's going to create more opportunities and more creativity with still a lot of human elements in it for a long time to come. And yeah. 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 Like, or, you know, there's probably a different genres. Like, yeah, I want to, I'm going to go watch the latest AI generated movie as a particular genre, but there's probably going to, yeah, I'm not always going to want to watch yeah. AI generated. I want to, I still want that heartfelt connection to humanity because um, I'm a human. So, yeah. And I, and exactly like you said, like I can foresee and probably if, if it's not happening already, I can, I can pretty quickly foresee that there will be, there'll be digital, you know, AI art competitions, right? For and sure. it will only be for AI art. And there'll be, you know, photography, AI photography competition. So it's use AI to create a photograph of something. And then you, you know, you can have a competition around that because, and that makes sense. Then all the people that want to do that sort of stuff have a, you know, they have a vehicle they can use to, to go and get their name out there and whatever. And those aren't copyrightable in any country anywhere, which is quite interesting. So if it's created by AI, there's no copyright on it. So people would just be doing it for fun. There's, there's no protection that, that, that can be afforded for that, at least at the minute. Um, and, but it might help to keep, it's, a, it's sort of akin to what people say about the Olympics and sporting events, right? It's like, you almost feel like you need two separate Olympics, right? You need the clean Olympics and then you need the, like, let's take, let's let yeah, let's take happens. as many drugs as they want <laughs> and sort of, you know, let's, let's just see how far it can go. But you'd need to separate those two out. Like how fast can a human possibly run if you just yeah. let them take as many steroids and do whatever they want as they want? Like, yeah. you know, could they cut the time in half? I don't know, maybe, but you know, it'd be, be quite interesting to see in a way. Well, you've got, you've got the chess competitions already, right? Where yeah. you have the, the human plus computer competitions. And from what I read about those is, yeah, again, they're not trying to, overtake human versus human or even the human versus robots but the the bionic is that the word for it where it's like mesh of humans and robot anyways like uh yeah they're almost yeah. at a different style and they're almost like this different type of competition as long as everybody understands hey yeah you know you, you can use your favorite ai i'll use my favorite ai um and yeah the combinations of moves and the different tactics that happen almost reinvigorate the game because they're like wow that's that's so clever. And I would have never thought about that. But I'd never thought about that. Yeah. Like yeah. these are grandmasters saying this, you know, like that is so bizarre. And like, you know, the, the AlphaGo competition, obviously. Was a, like, why the hell is it doing that? Yeah. I remember really? I, I saw something and I remember them when the watching the Go stuff and them just sitting and looking and they just couldn't, they were like, this is totally on the wrong track. Like they just couldn't understand what the machine was doing. And then it was only at some point about three quarters or 80% of the way through. Everybody and then like, they oh. realized that it's been doing this intentionally the whole time. And they were like, Oh my God. Like yes. they just couldn't even, they were, they were just stunned at, exactly. you know, how, how far ahead it was actually planning and, and how it worked out. Um, so yeah, 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 yeah. I want to, I, I just want to go back on something that you said before. I do have a couple of notes that I've written down here um, that I wanted to go back to. And uh, we're sort of 40 minutes, we're 45 minutes in already, if you can believe it. You talked about this sort of the UI UX part of it, which is that layer that sits on top, right? Of the of the different AIs or maybe that federated layer or whatever it is. And I totally agree with you on that. And I think that that sort of user experience piece is is going to be, hugely important and i put that in the context of of podcast tools so there are there's probably 10 different platforms that i could use i use riverside to record my my remote shows but there's tons of other ones out there there's acast there's there's all these different ones and you can go you can record it you can record it locally you can do all this stuff and most of them now have ai tools that go along with that but there's also other tools like podium and swell and Jasper and all these different, you know, tools that basically do the same thing. You can upload an audio file. It generates your, you know, suggested titles. It does show notes. It does, it does all of your timestamps for your chapters. It does everything. It'll create social posts, blog posts, like all the stuff, is, right? Gross. But they are all very, very different. And the results that they give are very, very different. And the, the way that they write, their show notes and the the tone that that it has and the words that it uses and the things that it pulls out of the conversations are all 
Some are very different and some are very subtly different. Mm. And I probably tried six different tools before I settled on using Podium, okay. um, which is my personal favorite. But again, you know, loads of people will use different ones. But sure. I found that really interesting and that that goes back. And I just I just wanted to highlight that because my experience exactly reflects what you were saying, which is, you know, it's all this subtle stuff that kind of goes into the because I'm pretty sure that all of them use ChatGPT's API in the back end. Mm-hmm. So they're doing some sort of something on top of that. So they're adding their little bit of magic to it, right? Yeah. And that's where it it becomes really interesting. And, and you know, I think, you know, you being a, a product manager and stuff like that, you're probably even more sensitive to how to create that experience mm-hmm. than I am. You know, I just use the product and I go well, this is great. And that's terrible. (laughs) You know, and, and some of it and, and shout out to, they're probably going to hate me for this, but when I very first used podium, it had the worst UI literally of like, it was the most raw plain. It's like literally upload this thing. And the only thing you can do is download a zip file, right? Like that's all it did. It did like it was so simple and the, and the stuff that it gave, it was really raw, really rough, plain text files, all that sort of stuff. And they've, you know, kudos to them. They've worked really hard to improve their, their UI that, you know, we can use now and that their user experience and stuff, but the con the core of the content hasn't changed. And so I use them even though the UI was not the best or it wasn't, you know, as good as some of the competitors, I still used it because the content that it generated felt like, the stuff it matched the stuff that I felt when I had the conversation. No, um, and and that's you know that's hugely important, and that's you know I guess that's the core of why there's different you know there's there's loads of different tools to do all sorts of stuff because you know every we're all different and we like one thing over another, and you know there's not there's not one tool to rule them all. Um, no, that's that's right, and so without turning this too much into a product management podcast. One of the big reasons why I started with Helperee.io was a little bit to scratch my own itch, but a lot to start thinking about these, what we call in the product industry, jobs to be done. I don't think it's just the product industry, but it's a very yeah. popular term, jobs to be done. Yeah. And so as a podcaster, you have some very specific jobs to be done. And so Podium, and I completely feel their pain, put something out, from, which was probably a crap UX, and they intentionally did that. I'm, I'm guessing maybe they didn't, but to put it out and have you start playing with it and start saying, yeah, this is all right, but this sucks. And I, you know, I can't quite do this, but that's how we learn as product people. And I think if there's anything I learned over the past six, seven years as product manager that I'd rather put something out now that sucks and is a bit embarrassing. And my early adopters are going to kind of grunt and hate me for it, but I will learn 100%. exactly, you know, what jobs we've done. I should focus on because it's kind of like, well, okay, I'll put up with this little niggle. Like, okay, this is a bit annoying, but it's really cool that they, they let me do this. And I'm really, you know, and so you, you, you sort of learn what to prioritize. But the other part of it is 100% accurate as well is that we all have our own take on how to deliver that experience. I wish I could say that it's 100% the case in all products that there, there is a lot of room for competition. We can very easily showcase that that's not the case. Like Google, the functionality behind the search of Google meant that the UX could be super simple. It's just like type something in and you know we'll handle everything in the background and they more or less took a monopoly position on search. But yes, in a lot of software, no one company no matter how much competitive intelligence they're, they're going to do and try to even steal ideas from their competitors, is going to corner the market on the best way to do things because everyone's going to take a slightly different take and the users will have slightly different needs and what's important to them. And so, yeah, I think there there's so much space right now for so many companies to create these layers on top of the large language models, which will then in turn improve the large language models and and possibly have them compete against each other and say, hey, this is what's missing from your large language model because my users don't like the output. And so I started incorporating three different ones and they kept choosing, uh, you know, Bard or Gemini for this, yeah. uh, but this yeah. ChatGPT for that. And, and so it, it's all quite 
self-fulfilling and kind of helps everyone out. And yeah, that's exactly why there's so many, there's so many different paths to take right now. If anyone's interested in going into the AI industry, trust me, there's, there's room for competition. And I think the more the merrier at this point, because although it might take time and finding product from their market fit for whatever idea you have on AI is not going to be necessarily just build it and they'll come. That never happens. But if you do pay attention to when people start to use it and start teasing out these use cases, I think that will give us, even going back to the original question as well, like how much ethical guidance do we need to put on top of this, you know, or, or, and, and then you might choose, right? You might choose the one that actually helps you be a better person, whereas some other tool just spits out the typical default kind of, you know, biased garbage that we don't want to put out there. And so that's exactly, you know, that's exactly the way that I think the free market, let's say, or good product management helps to deliver value to the end user, but also possibly enhance the industry as a whole. 100%. So I have something else on my notes. I'm going to save that for next time because, Mm. because, well, absolutely, hundred percent. We'll chat again, so I'm not worried about that, and I'll I'll save this this note for next time. But we're at the end of the year. We have to do a bit of future gazing, right? Like we we have to indulge ourselves a little bit while we've got sort of ten minutes left. So, where what do you see? Just you know, based on what you've seen happening so far and what's happened over the over the last year, if you got out your crystal ball, what do you think we might see in 2024? 2023 has been quite amazing to me. Uh, the, yeah, the breadth of things that happened around AI. Quite unexpectedly for me, we talked about it last time, that this has been around for quite a while in our day-to-days. Um, but the, yeah. Yeah, the, game, the game has definitely changed and shifted. So what I see happening in 2024 is actually more more big players coming up in the large language model space. It's not easy to build these large language models, but I think what what I'm anticipating to see is slightly different takes on the training of these large language models, the retraining of them, the ability to interact with their APIs to give them better context, to give them better um, customization of what's important. Um, because especially with the latest stuff that happened with ChatGPT and the whole SAML and firing, rehiring, all that stuff, maybe that was completely intentional to diminish their commercial, uh, the, the that commercial was a disaster. Yeah, that was a, that was a disaster. Items. But I think it had some intended or some, some consequences that they probably took a little bit of a step back from commercial aspirations. And maybe that's exactly what their board wanted because they always never want, or they never wanted to be a commercial operation. But mm-hmm. it might it might not have taken them down two, three pegs, but at least one peg in the sense of people saw a chink in the armor. And there's there's going to be competitors that have already, I can't, I'm completely blanking on the French competitor. That's coming out of France. Mistral? Is it Mistral? Mistral, yeah. Where I think it's Mistral, yeah. Mistral. So you've got Mistral, you've got Gemini, and you've got others that are already also quite further ahead that people might think as far as how good the quality is. And then, of course, you've got the hugging face of the world where people have access to these large English models and who knows what they're doing with them. And, and it's still quite expensive to really run a large language model at scale and have the full pipeline to keep it up to date and training and actually um, outputting content as quickly as the the more common ones like GPT-4 and order. But do you think, sorry, just no, to no, stop yeah. your, your, your thought there, but on that, do you think that there's, like I would feel like that the obvious business model is, is that you say, like someone like Elon Musk, when he, you know, sort of gets his, you know, becomes more available because he always wanted it to be sort of open source and available and freely available to everyone. But there, there is a practical consideration, right, of cost of training and maintaining and all of that yeah. and running. So do you think it'll end up where I'll say, okay, look, if you're an individual and you just want to use the platform to help you with your work or whatever, you can have it for free. 
Like any individual can have it for free. But if you want to connect via an API, it's the API users that then pay for access and that's what they use to fund, you know, well, the, the platforms. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, and that is, for the most part, what I can see, that is the model. Like they, these yeah. LLMs, they want, they need as well. They, the more people are using it, the better yeah. for them anyways. So yeah. for sure, I think, well, I actually can't remember. No, ChatGPT. GPT 3.5 is still free. I actually don't remember the subscription model. I think 3.5 3, 3. is free. Four is, I think it's is. $20 a month. So like, and so, I have a subscription, but I don't, like I'm actually considered, I've considered canceling my subscription because I actually don't use it. Yeah. Ironically, even though I have a podcast about it, I don't use well, it directly very much anymore. Well, why would you? And if you haven't, I use Bard. It's actually, I'm not trying to sell Bard services, but I've been using Bard more than ChatGPT for my actual personal use or work use. Yeah. And then for yeah. Helpery so far, it's just connected to the API for ChatGPT. But yes, I think you'll keep seeing this definitely freemium model where if you're just a user, you just want to talk to it, um, a large language model, that's free. And then yes, the, the API is where not only are they going to make money, but that's where I think you'll start seeing more nuance, more feature sets uh, for people like me who are building this layer on top to better control the model without me having to actually run and train and build the model. Right? So these models now become yeah. their own products and as they already are. But yeah, because more people are putting layers on top and we're seeing more API connections to them, that will instinctively drive specialization or at least certain ways to interact with the model that don't exist today. So I think we're going to see a lot of that in 2024 is like just how, just how like expansive can the differentiation be? And the, these large companies or these companies working on these large labor models are not immune to what we were talking about earlier is they're all going to take a slightly different take. The data scientists at OpenAI are going to work a little bit different than the ones at Google, than the ones at Mistral, and they have different biases and different kind of end, end yeah. games in mind, you know, so these are all going to bubble up to the surface of their large, large vacant model. And I think we're going to start getting into the, the era of LLM wars, right? Like mine is better than yours. And then, you know, is Elon Musk on S the one that everyone is like afraid of because it's spewing so much uh, you know, misinformation or, or just this horrible hate speech or, or not, who knows what. Yeah. yeah. Or not. Yeah. 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 Or maybe yeah. because it's open to everybody, it can, it can police that more or something like that. So I think we're going to see a lot of that. And then I would anticipate even more AI in software that you've normally used or typically use. Probably like you already in most of the software you use. I mean, on a day-to-day basis, you're already seeing this. But I think even even more so, uh, people will, it'll, it'll be brought to the service more as like a selling point that people can interact with it. Yeah. Um, so I think we'll, we'll see a lot more of that because, yeah, companies are absolutely taking advantage of connecting to these different LLMs through their APIs. And so yeah. far, the price is not um, prohibitive that they can just play around with it, see how their users interact with it. And I imagine it's just going to become more and more part of every piece of software that you use. And then what I'd hope to see, and I think you know, a couple of your guests uh, have talked about as well, is... There, there will certainly be more legislation come out in 2024. Obviously, the EU literally just ratified the, the AI law, which I haven't actually read in full detail, but it seemed a little bit vague from what I did read it. But I'm sure there will be more. It has to be. It has, has to be, be. yeah. There will be, <laughs> be slightly more regulation, hopefully more on the ethics pieces of this. I think a lot of the ethics are going to come from the ground up. and And I think... Because the government, you know, in the EU and the UK and the US, whatever, they can put these guardrails in place or whatever, which are which will be very general guidelines. But I think where we're really going to see the hard limits are going to come from industry bodies that are already existing, right? Like the legal industry has the bar and all these different things, and they have ethics boards and all sorts of stuff that the lawyers have to abide by. And the AI is going to have to abide by those same rules and regulations. Yeah. And so- uh, that's how I see that playing out. I think at least on the, on the ground is that there, those bodies are just going to say, well, we just have to treat AI like any other lawyer. Yeah. 
right? So anything that it does, it has to act in accordance with all the rules. So if you use AI in your law firm, then it's like that's an employee of yours. And if it does something that's outside the rules of you know normal ethical legal behavior, then you're going to get in the same trouble that you would as, as if one of your lawyers did it. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know, but that seems like the natural way. I hope so. I hope so. And, and somewhat related to this, which made me think about another prediction for 2024 that is perhaps a little bit darker. But I hope that it, it means there's, I really hope there's people working on this right now. <laughs> and, and, and I know there is to some degree, but I think deep fake technology, which is already scarily good, especially apparently next year is like some massive it's one of the biggest political years around the world like yeah. between u.s presidency yeah. eu parliament all this stuff so yeah, uk everything yeah so yeah you have to believe you have to almost anticipate that a hundred percent there will be a lot of misinformation through the use of deep vague technology out there next year which also means there's an opportunity to help safeguard against that using AI, hopefully, as well, to be like, oh, yeah, this is very likely deep vague. Now, one slight shed of, like, <laughs> I guess, optimism is that we, because of social media, I think more people are hesitant to necessarily believe things immediately, I hope. I, yeah. I don't know, you know, like yeah. I'm in a bubble. So the people around me probably are, but I don't know if everybody around the world is. So did so you get any coverage? Sorry. Did you get any coverage great. down there about the Keir Starmer thing that happened here in the UK? Well, no. So there was a recording of uh, Keir Starmer, who's the leader of the Labour Party. And um, it came out and it sounded like he was like at lunch or something. And he was, you know, swearing at his assistant and all sorts of stuff that came out. And it was very quickly, roundly analyzed and decided that it was deep fake, that it was okay. fake. But it was quite interesting that people were on it, you know, quite quickly. And in less than pretty much 24 hours, it had been debunked already. Oh, that's good. Okay. But I think that was a test. Yes. I think people were probing and just putting something out there to see if, you know, if, if it would kind of be accepted and if anybody would pick it up and it got, it, it, it got tested and, and sort of, you know, roundly decided that it was, that it was, that it was bad. And yeah. so to going on what you're saying is I think that that's happening. And I think there are people out there policing a lot of this content now, but I think this will be the last set of elections where we will be able to trust even anything that we see. Because four years from now, forget it. Yeah. No hope. It's just going to be a constant, you know, chase the pirates type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 100%. I mean, I mean well, one of the things I did want to ask you so many, like we could talk for another hour, dude. I know. <laughs> so much stuff about that. I know. Uh, one thing that annoys me though, and I don't know if you've noticed this, is, is like particularly on YouTube, it's like there's been an explosion of AI read like instruction videos and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, and it's just like, oh my God, if I hear another one of these AI videos where it's just a fake <laughs> voice reading a script, it, it just does my head in. And I'm just yeah. like, oh my God. So there's the deep fake side of it where some people are maybe trying to generate really good content. And then there's just, there's like this flood of this cheap AI content. And you yes. know, because there's so many videos out there going, yeah, you can just generate content. You know, you can do a hundred videos a week and yes. you know, put all this stuff out and, you know, three to five minutes and it, you know, it's going to fit with the yeah, algorithm. It's thousands of months in, in income. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's going to, you know, it's killing even YouTube now. So I'm, I'm sure YouTube will put some, some sort of, you know, tools in to test and see if that's been AI generated content and to, to figure out how to maybe deprioritize that over, real human content but yeah yeah i think there's going to be that i mean that's one of my hopes for next year is that there's going to well, be a big bit of pushback on on that yeah, sort of stuff where people are going to go you know basically me, fuck off we don't want to hear that no me too like i i don't need more listicles read out by an ai um it, no. what's interesting is because it is happening on youtube but famously you know youtube still owned by alphabet you know 
very separate from the people at Google and, you know, working in the, in the SEO industry right now, you know, I learned things how Google does punish people for AI content because it's not really useful. Yeah. It's just copy pasting and that's not really useful for people in search. So hopefully YouTube does the same thing where it's like, yeah, this is just really poor quality. Uh, you at least use a good AI voice. Like there's much better AI voices than a lot of these um, videos will have. Right. And yeah. Um, but they're cheap. So they, but this is exactly the whole thing, right? Or they're yes. free. So they're just using free ones and just exactly. cranking out this terrible, oh, it's terrible. So I hope, yeah, I hope the YouTube team, you know, can, can incorporate similar. I mean, the, the Google search, I didn't really actually know this, or maybe I did, but I didn't really pay attention to it. You know, Google, from the search perspective, actually employed a lot of people, almost mechanical Turk style, to, to randomly check um, content as well. And maybe that's, you know, maybe that's something that YouTube really, maybe they already do, but maybe they need to do more of as well and, and really kind of penalize people who are putting out just this like rubbish that isn't really useful. You can, yeah. you know, it's just clogging up space um, so that those people don't get rewarded by accidental even views um, or yeah. certainly not promoted in the, in the right-hand navigation. It's like, um, it's like what Spotify did. Spotify demonetized millions of accounts because all they were doing is they were just putting up ambient like a lot of like the asmr type sounds and stuff like that and they were using it to get you know royalty payments off of that and they're like this yeah. isn't it it's just it's sounds creative, and it's yeah. yeah it's it's not actually creative it's just you know the same thing over and over and they had you know i think it was pretty easy for them to identify where they had accounts that were you know, posting thousands of these sound files yeah. and what they were doing is they were just picking up the long tail revenue off that. Right. So, you, you know, even if you get one or two pence or, you know, cents or whatever off of plays, because you've got 10,000 sound files out there, you're actually making a thousand, you know, dollars a month or whatever it was. Yes. And, you know, they're like, no, that we, yeah. we're not going to have that on the platform because we want to take that money and actually pay people who are really creating actual content and music yeah. and songs you know, so maybe, yeah, maybe YouTube is going to, you know, be a bit more aggressive about, about that. Yeah, I don't I do, know, man. We'll see. I, I expect that we'll get some, I expect to see some M&A. So some mergers and, and acquisitions going on next year. I, I suspect that we'll see some of the smaller companies start to, to gather together, you know, as the, the cost of, you know, using the, the APIs and, and getting access to those core LLM models goes up. I think, you know, they're not going to be able to maybe afford it at a, at such a small scale. So we might see some of that happening. And I think we might also see some of the bigger sites, even like the Metas and stuff like that, who have their own models. You know, they're, they've always had a, a business model of buying, you know, good technology yeah. um, in. And so I suspect that we might see a little bit of that going on as, as this becomes more of a, of a business, but um but we'll see. I have some other thoughts, but um, but anyway. No, there's yeah. It's it's always impossible. It's fun, it's, or sometimes fun to predict. But we do. Well, it'll be fun to come back next year. And, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll do this next December and go right. What did we say last time? Oh shit! It's yeah. totally different than what we thought. <laughs> exactly. So but, yeah. right. Thanks, man. Yeah, no, that was always cool. a pleasure. Keep doing it, man. I, I need to come and see you, and we can sit on the beach and and have like I don't know sangrias or something, and actually just talk about this all afternoon. And our wives can well, just go do something else. Yeah, there's like, a producer that's the last we thing they want to hear about. <laughs> no, definitely come out to Mallorca. Let's do uh, let's do an AI AI on the beach. Um, yeah, let's do it. Why not? Yeah, let's do that. Mike, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy your holidays, and um, we will speak to you soon. Awesome. Happy all to you and yours. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. The Creatives with AI Podcast. The spiritual home of creatives curious about AI and its role in their future. future.